Now, if this is your first time with us, welcome. Uh, we are so glad you've chosen to worship with us today. And if you decide to worship with us uh, on a regular basis, uh, what you're going to find is that uh, most of the time we are studying our way, teaching our way through whole books of the Bible. And right now, we are working our way through the New Testament book of James. And what we have seen so far is that James is a kind of uh, no-nonsense preacher. In fact, he's more of a preacher than a writer, not necessarily a hellfire and brimstone kind of preacher, but he's a, a you-better-wake-up-and-take-what-I'm-telling-you-seriously kind of preacher. And his purpose is in this sermon is to encourage his readers and, and us to put our faith into action. He's exhorting us to live out our faith in visible, practical, tangible ways. He's calling for us to do our faith. Now, Jason did a great job last week unpacking the last few verses of chapter one, and he focused on the relationship between being and doing and how all of our doing has to be rooted in our being. In other words, doing our faith always flows out of who God has made us to be. Doing flows out of our new identity, the new identity that God gave us when we first trusted Christ as our saviors. And this is so important because James never tells us to do something without also telling us who we are in Christ. Let me put it this way because it's bigger than James. It's the Bible, before the Bible tells you what to do, it tells you who you are. Before the Bible tells you what to do, it tells you who you are. For example, before God gave Israel the Ten Commandments, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then he says, you shall have no other gods before me. And he goes on to give nine other commandments. So before God tells Israel how they are to live before him, he reminds them of who he is and who they are as his people. The book of Ephesians, the whole book, the whole letter breaks down like this. Ephesians chapters one through three tell us who we are in Christ. And then chapters four through six tell us how to live as followers of Christ. Now, let me just get a little technical and grammatical here, but Bible scholars tell, tell us that this is um, they refer to this whole thing as the indicative and the imperative. The indicative is a statement of fact. The imperative is a command. And every imperative command of Scripture, what God tells us to do, rests on an indicative, on, on something that God tells us about who we are in our relationship with him, who we are in Christ. So remember this, who before do, who before do. And we saw this uh, last week in chapter 1, verse 18, and uh, I'm going to read it again uh, to show it to you one more time because it's so, so very important in going forward. But in chapter 1, verse 18, this is my paraphrase, he, God, chose to give us birth by implanting his true word in us, and we out of all creation became his prized possession. We became his prized possession. That's the indicative. That's who God made us to be. And then he gives us imperatives. So be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to get angry, and get rid of all the filth and evil in your life. Be doers of the word 
and not just hearers of the word. And again, many, many places of scripture, this is all through the Bible. The point is, doing always flows out of being. And James tells us in no uncertain terms that if there is no doing, if you do not apply what you believe to how you live, then for all intents and purposes, this side of heaven, your faith is useless. It doesn't do you or anyone else any good, and we're going to see that very clearly today. So hear then the word of God from James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing were to come into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, hey, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, uh, you can stand there in the back, or, or just sit, sit here at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones, uh, the rich, the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name of, of, by which you were called? Uh, look, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, uh, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. You're doing good. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin, and you're convicted by the law as a lawbreaker. For whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy always triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Like, for instance, going back to what I said at the beginning, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. And this is the word of God for the people of God. So James is writing to Christians. He clearly addresses them. As brothers in verse 1, my beloved brothers in verse 5, my brothers in verse 14, and brothers and sisters in verse 15. So he's talking to saved people. He's not questioning whether they're true believers or not. He's questioning whether they're living out their faith or not. And even more specifically, he's writing to groups of Christians meeting in house churches because the scene he sets for us here in this passage is a hypothetical situation of something that could happen when the church meets together. Now, this is interesting. This is the only place in the Bible where ushers are addressed. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? So nobody except the ushers needs to listen to this message. Uh, no, 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 no. Um, now, I mean, it's true that it would be the ushers who help people find a seat before a worship service begins, 
But James is concerned about this attitude of showing favoritism or partiality. He's concerned that that is something that permeates this entire congregation. But it's important to lay these two foundational planks. James is talking to people he considers to be genuine followers of Jesus, and he's talking about something that might happen in church. Now, I want to give you this. Sometimes it's good to do some Bible study. So I want to give you a breakdown of this, a kind of a big picture flyover of the passage and break it down to you. Uh, so let me, let's do this. James begins with a command. As a community of faith, don't show favoritism. Then he gives us a hypothetical example of favoring the rich over the poor at church. Then he reasons why that's not a good thing. He says, because God's heart is for the poor and needy. Then he gives us a scriptural basis, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, if you don't do that, here's a warning, no mercy to those who show no mercy. And then he ties it all in with faith by, say, by saying a faith that doesn't act to help a person in need is worthless. It doesn't do you or anybody else any good. Now, you don't have to scramble to get all that down. I put it in the app. And it's online in the PDF that goes along with the sermon. But let's look at it one more time. I want you to see the breakdown. He gives us a command, don't show favoritism. He gives us a hypothetical example, don't favor the rich over the poor in your church meetings. He reasons that God's heart is for the poor. He gives a scriptural basis. You're supposed to be loving your neighbor as yourself. He warns them, if you don't show mercy, you won't receive mercy. And then there's this tie-in with faith that says a faith that doesn't act to help a person in need, it doesn't do anybody any good, doesn't do them any good, and it's not doing you any good. Okay, so back to the command. Don't show favoritism. He says, my friends, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, don't show favoritism. Don't play favorites. Don't be cliquish. And here's the hypothetical example. He says, let's say that a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and the at the same time, a poor man comes in, and he's shabbily dressed. And, and James says, if the ushers show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes, and they say, here's a good seat for you right here down front. But they say to the, more, the, the poor man, you stand in the back or, or sit in the floor by my feet. James says, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? That's what he's saying. And this is interesting. When he says... Suppose two people come into your house church meeting and one of them, this is kind of funny, he says one of them is gold-fingered, gold-fingered. Now, I'm sure he, James never saw the movie uh, James Bond, Goldfinger, but uh, that's what he's saying. One man comes in to your meeting, gold-fingered. And what that literally says, gold-fingered, is that this man is, wants to show by the way he's dressed that he's a man of importance. So here is a man of importance, he's a man of weightiness, he's a man of power and influence, uh, and, and, and people see that and they know that because of how he's dressed. Another man comes in and he's a man of much less importance, virtually no influence, no power or social standing, and how do we know that? Because of the way he's dressed. So they both come in and they're at different places on the social scales of importance, and it's immediately recognizable. And James says, even when that happens, that kind of thing happens, don't show favoritism. Don't show partiality. Don't discriminate between the two, deciding that one man has greater value than the other. 
You see, favoritism is treating people in different ways based on their outward appearance or for what you think you might get from them. Favoritism is treating people according to their outward appearance or for what you think you might get from them. And let me just tell you this. It was a big problem in the first century. But thankfully, of course, today it's not a problem, right? Yeah, right. We wish. Now, there's also something else that's interesting in this passage. Because literally in the Greek, James says, My brothers, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, don't show partialities. Don't show favoritisms. It's plural. And I guess they didn't translate it that way because it sounds a, a bit odd. But here's what the plural means. James is saying, even though I'm giving you one example, like here's a place, here's a church in which people with more money look down on people with less. Here's a place where people with, with social status and stature are considered to have more value than, than other people. James says, this is just one example of favoritism. But there are a whole lot more examples of, of, of people showing uh, favoritism towards one person or one group over another. And his point is, they're all wrong. All forms of discrimination are wrong and out of sync with the gospel. They're out of sync with what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. And in this fallen, broken world that's in rebellion against God, and especially in our American culture today, we're constantly separating people into all kinds of categories where one group is favored over another. Rich, poor, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Democrat, Republican, progressive, conservative, popular, unpopular, cool, uncool, fashionable, unfashionable. And listen, of course, there are differences between people and people groups. And some of those differences are very important. But we're not simply talking differences here. We're talking about determining someone's value based on, dif- on their differences or better, based on which group they're in. And it's worse now than ever before in our country's history because favoritism and partialities and hateful prejudice are being pushed on us from the top down and consequently we're more divided and more discriminatory than we've been. And James, if James were writing on our day, he could have easily have talked about followers of Jesus showing partiality towards political groups or different racial groups or different socioeconomic groups. Like, let's say, you come to a church meeting next week, you're coming to church, and as you're walking in the door, you hear this bus pull up, and, there, and, and the bus beeps, and you turn around, and out of that bus comes 25 or 30 immigrants. So what's your attitude towards those immigrants? I'm not asking you what, your, how, what you think of the government's policy on immigration, right? I'm not asking you that. I'm asking what's your attitude towards the person, the immigrant? What's your heart attitude? You feel any tension in, in your chest? You got your stump speech ready to go? Again, don't confuse policy with a living, breathing person. And here's the deal. For some of us, you're not going to feel the sucker punch in this text You're not going to feel the tension. You're not going to squirm in your seat unless this comes home to you. We're far more discriminatory than God would have us to be. I'm I'm quite sure when James' letter, his sermon was read in the house churches, people were squirming in their seats. They're looking down in their laps and they're 
looking around and wondering, if, did somebody tell James what I said about that person? No. James is saying, inside the, church, inside the community of faith, there should be no identity distinctions, no partiality shown to one social group or one social class or one socioeconomic group or one cultural group or one racial group over another because if there is, James says, have you not become judges with evil thoughts? Now, that's actually a term that means judges who take bribes. He's saying if inside the church you privilege one social class or one cultural group group over another, then you're like a dishonest judge. You're perverting justice, God's justice. I'm telling you, James doesn't pull any punches, and it gets worse. But let's take a minute just to review what we said so far. The command is don't show favoritism. The hypothetical example is don't favor the rich over the poor. Inside your house church meetings, don't discriminate. Don't make identity distinctions among yourself based on outward appearance and cultural identities. And here's the reasoning, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen the, those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom in which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called? <laughs> now look at this. Has not God chosen the poor to be rich in faith? Now what does that mean? I mean, it's very clear in this passage that there are rich and poor in this house, in this house church to which James is writing. It's very clear in the New Testament that God's not opposed to rich people because in the New Testament times, uh, rich people opened their homes to local church, for local churches to meet in. So what, is it, so what does it mean when it says God chooses the poor to be rich in faith? I, I take it that he, it's just a historical fact. It's just a historical fact. It doesn't mean that God favors the poor over uh, poor people over rich people. It doesn't mean that God shows partiality to the poor over rich. It's simply a historical fact. For example, the Apostle Paul, when he writes to the earliest Christians in the Corinthian church, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 29, he says this, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Think of what you were when you were first trusted Christ. Not many of you were sophisticated or wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness and holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What's Paul saying? Simple fact. Most of the people who have become Christians, uh, who, who became Christians in the early church, were people of lower socioeconomic status. And the simple fact is, it's always been the case. It's always been true. And even today, a, the, the great majority of people who are coming to Christ today in the world are living in the Southern Hemisphere. They are living in Latin America, Africa, and Asia, and they're poor. It's always been the case. 
So when James says God chooses the poor to be rich in faith, it's just a historical fact. Just like verse six says, it's also a fact that in world history, a common theme, and sadly in the church as well, it's, not, it's a common theme that all too often the ruling class oppresses and takes advantage of the poorer classes. Now I want you to think about something. 175 years ago in this country, during the time of slavery, you had rich slave owners who wrongly justified slavery by taking Bible verses out of context. But slaves by the thousands embraced Christianity, the religion of the slave owners. Now, how do you make sense of that? I mean, you would think that no way, no how would an oppressed, enslaved people embrace the faith of their oppressors. So why did so many slaves become Christians? Hold that thought, and let me give you another example along the same line, then I'm going to bring the two together. One of the great ironies in recent church history is that during the 50s and 60s, there were many clergy, both Protestant and Catholic, in Latin America who saw the suffering of the poor and they chucked their Christian beliefs. They ditched Christianity and they bought into cultural Marxism, which basically says that Christianity is the opium of the people and Christianity dis disempowers the poor. And they said, well, we care about the poor. We're in solidarity with the poor. So they dropped their Christianity and became cultural Marxists. And the great irony to, is this, to their astonishment and to everybody's great astonishment, in Latin America, for, uh, uh, since the 50s and 60s, there's been an, an explo uh, uh, explosion of born-again Christians, uh, particularly of the Pentecostal type, so much so that some Latin American countries have gone from 1% to 2% Christian to over 40% born-again Christians. Now, what do these people believe? What is it that they believe that they find so attractive well, they believe in the complete authority of the Bible. They believe that you're saved by the blood of Christ. They believe you have to be born again by the Holy Spirit. They believe Jesus is coming back to renew the world and put everything right. And because this is an undeniable fact, sociologists have done studies of villages that have largely or, or, or even completely converted. And what they find is that Marxist philosophy was absolutely wrong. They found that the personal lives and the family lives and the economic lives of the poor had improved. Why? Because they were empowered. How so? As sociological studies will tell you, as pastors and missionaries of those poor people will tell you, here's what they say. They say, the gospel says to people, the Lord of the universe died for you and loves you. The God of the universe puts his spirit in you and gives you spiritual gifts so that you are now his agents of reconciliation in the world. You're on a mission with him. And someday Jesus is going to come back and he's going to set right everything that's wrong in this world. All accounts will be settled. He'll put everything right. And you're a part of that. You'll be there with him. And you right now are a part of everything that God is doing in the world. That's what the gospel tells people. Now, you lay that against Marxist, uh, a Marxist secular worldview that says, well, uh, you're here by accident. At best, you're a highly complex biological organism with no real purpose in life except to find a way to survive. 
Now, which of those two worldviews empowers the poor? Which one affirms their value and worth? Which worldview infuses them with a sense of eternal dignity? Which is more attractive? Well, the gospel, of course. The gospel empowers the poor, always has. That's why the gospel is empowering and attractive to poor people. Now, when Dr. Martin Luther King confronted the terrible systemic racism in the South, which was supported by many, many white churches, what did he say? Did he say, let's chuck our Christian beliefs and become more secular? Is that what he said? Did he say with the cultural Marxists of his day in the 50s and 60s, Christianity is the opium of the people. Christianity has oppressed the poor. Christianity has oppressed our people for 100 years. So if there ever is going to be racial equality in this country, we've got to get rid of Christianity. Is that what he said? Like, after all, truth is relative. Everybody has to decide for themselves what's right and wrong. Uh, did, he, did he say, he didn't say that? Absolutely not. Think, if truth is relative, if everybody can decide for themselves what's right and wrong, then why would white people have ever given up their power in the South? That's not what Dr. King argued. He, he, he didn't say because of the injustice of Christians, we should throw Christianity on the trash heap of history. No. He said what you need is truer belief, deeper belief. He was saying you need to get to the heart of your Christian faith and see what it teaches, which is exactly what Christian abolitionists did in the 1800s. What's at the center of the Christian faith? A man who preached good news to the poor. A man who died at the hands of a ruling class system of injustice. You see it, the solution to injustice is not less Christianity, but more a truer, deeper Christian faith. So Dr. King said the argument of the cultural Marxist doesn't wash. Now hear me, I'm not saying that, that this doesn't mean that there hasn't been a terrible record of oppression done by the church, but it's by no means an argument for the falsehood of Christianity. If anything, it's an argument for getting in touch with true, authentic Christianity. And I've got one of my most prized possessions is a, is a first edition of Dr. King's uh, sermons, uh, a book of his sermons called Strength to Love. And it is, I could preach those messages here, and maybe I'll preach one on, on Martin Luther King Day one day. But they are solid, authentic Christianity applied to the problem of racial justice, which isn't happening today, by the way. The gospel is good news for everyone, and it's especially good news for the poor. And let me just say this. Any talk about social justice or racial justice that comes from a government that rejects the Bible, that comes from an atheistic, ruling, elite class that makes fun of Christianity and ridicules Christianity on college campuses and in the media and in the movies, any claim made by cultural Marxists of our day that they are for the poor and the needy are oppressed is a lie. It's simply a political tool. <laughs> Hear me, that will never Bring about the kind of justice and mercy that God desires for all people. Because mark it down, without a God of justice, there is no justice. 
Without a God of justice that spells out what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is evil and what is true and what is false, there is no justice at all and there's no justice for all. All there is is reoccurring forms of discrimination where one group is favored over another. And that's also true without a God of mercy, there is no mercy. Equity is not mercy. Equity is not equality. Equity is simply reverse discrimination. And, and, and James is saying, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't let the world's agenda define justice and mercy. Get your facts, get the truth from God's word. He defines justice. He alone defines mercy. Mercy. I went to preaching, I'm sorry, but anyway. So, James' main reason for telling us not to favor rich over poor is because God's chosen the poor and needy and oppressed to be rich in faith by calling them to himself and empowering them. And historically speaking, most people who have embraced Christ over the centuries are people of lower socioeconomic status. It's just a fact. And James is saying God has great concern and compassion for the poor and the needy and the oppressed. And the good news of the gospel gives the poor a sense of value and worth and hope that cannot be found in this world. Now here's what he says next. Here's the punch. He says anybody who's rightly related to God will have the same heart as God towards the poor and the needy and oppressed. Anyone who is rightly related to God will do the same. God's heart's for the poor and the needy and the oppressed. Anyone rightly related to God will have the same heart. People of faith will put their faith into action by refusing to favor rich over poor or any one type of person or group over another. The community of faith will do mercy as God gives us opportunity. Now look how James builds that point. Verse eight. This is the scriptural basis for not showing favoritism or partiality or prejudices. Verse eight. If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, what's the royal law? You should love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin. And you're convicted by the law itself as a lawbreaker. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said don't murder. If you don't commit adultery but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Now this really isn't that hard to understand. James says to show favoritism is to sin against your brother or sister in Christ. It is to break the royal law of loving your neighbor as yourself, a law that goes all the way back to the foundational principles of Levitical law, a law that goes back to Jesus' teaching. And when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he says that's the one law that sums up all the other Old Testament laws. And that's what makes it the royal law, as James calls it. And James says, you may think you're doing pretty well if you don't break the really big ones, like you hadn't murdered anybody and you hadn't committed adultery. But he says, if you show partiality, if you show favoritism, if you determine someone's value or worth based on their outward experience, you're as guilty as someone who breaks what you think are the big ones. Now, that's not too hard to understand. Now, what's harder to understand is verse 12, where he says, so speak and act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy always triumphs over judgment. 
that's hard to read. That's a sober, sobering warning there. It, it's, it, this is that sit up and pay attention to what I'm saying, punch in the gut. No mercy to those who show no mercy. Now, what's he saying? I mean, remember, he's talking to Christians, so he's not threatening individual believers with going to hell if sometimes uh, they have committed the sin of favoring one person over another. He's not threatening them with hell. Also remember, he's talking to churches, congregations as a whole. And with that in mind, here's how I understand this text. He's saying God will judge us as a congregation if we talk about love and mercy and we don't put our money where our mouth is, if we don't put our bodies where our mouth is and actually do something about the practical needs of people inside and outside the church, he's saying that God will judge the church if we just talk about mercy, but we don't do mercy. Judgment is without mercy for those who have shown no mercy. It's strong stuff, but there it is. And I take it to mean that God will not allow us to experience his blessing as a church if we don't take doing mercy seriously. Now, obviously, we still have a ways to go in living out our faith in ways that intersect with the poor and needy here in the upstate and around the world. And the difficulty is, and I'm sure you feel this, Uh, The needs are so great, sometimes you get overwhelmed trying to discern where and how to give and where and how to help. But I do want to commend you for what you have done and are doing. I have to build up to this, give you some uh, um, background. In terms of budget categories here at Fellowship Greenville, we have four separate funds. One is for the Upstate Church Collective, which we talked about. We have a general fund that finances the ministry that goes on inside the walls of this building uh, each week. And these are the ministries that serve you and your family and the elders and the executive team oversee this fund. We also have a benevolence fund that allows us to help with the practical needs of those who have fallen on hard times, people who need a hand up at various times. And the pastoral care team and the deacons administer that fund. And then we have a mission fund that supports ministry partners who are at work advancing the gospel here at home and around the world. Now in the mission fund, that's administered by the missional impact team. Two of the three categories in our mission fund, one is evangelism and discipleship, the others are mercy and care ministries and rehabilitation and development kind of ministries. Now, In terms of benevolence fund, I checked last week, and because of your generosity, over the last 10 years, we've been able to give uh, just add $800,000 through our benevolence fund to help people in need as they come into the church, or they're in the church. And in the last six years, in the missions budget, just in those categories, just in those categories of mercy and care, and rehabilitation and development, in those categories, you have given over a million dollars, or we have been able to give away a million dollars because of your generosity. Let me just give you some, some, some numbers. And this is just scratching the surface, folks. But in the last two years, we've sent about $200,000 specifically to displaced peoples 
and, and refugees. 64,000 to our partners in the Middle East who serve refugees and displaced people. 18,500 to Athens Refugee Center. 45,000 for either medical supplies or housing for Ukrainian refugees. $5,000 to India for refugees and trafficked and enslaved people. $20,500 to help people from Afghanistan, Christians from Afghanistan to settle in the U.S. $45,000 to Myanmar. On two, uh, uh, and uh, as I, it's just in these mercy and care categories. It's just in those. You've given so much more, but I've always said, you know what? We can do more together than any of us can do on our own, and I hope you're encouraged by just these few things that I've been able to share. You have been extending mercy, and we have been able to extend mercy around the world and and locally because of your generosity. And the encouraging thing to the elders and staff is because of your generosity, all of these funds have the ability to move quickly as needs arise. Just like when we heard about the the hurricane down in, in South Florida, we had a partner church down there. We were able to decide in one meeting to send $25,000 down there. We decided in one meeting to send uh, over $20,000 in flood relief to partner churches in Kentucky. So God has blessed us to be able to give generously to many mercy type ministries and one reason for this blessing, the blessing, the blessing to give is that you are generous and that means when needs arise after careful investigation, we're able to act quickly to meet those needs. All right, so uh, I gotta land the plane here. All right, verse 14. We're gonna talk about what I'm about to say. We're gonna talk more about next week, but I gotta talk about it here. But what I want you to see and what I'm gonna say next is the most debated passage in the book of James is directly related to this whole idea of showing mercy towards the poor and the needy. Verse 14 What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? Here's the tie-in with faith, our last category. If a brother or sister is purely clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled without giving them the things that they need for their body, what in the world does that do? It does nothing. What good is it? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Now, isn't it interesting that most of the time when this hotly debated passage uh, on faith and works is discussed, there's virtually no tie-in with the context? I mean, can you see how when James asks, can that faith save him, he's not talking about being saved from hell so you can go to heaven when you die. No, the question in verse 14 does not introduce a theological discussion about faith and works. It's a question that introduces and really takes us back to the whole idea of how we treat poor and needy people. He's saying a faith that does not act to help a person in need is a worthless faith. It's dead. It doesn't do you or anybody else any good. So when you encounter various trials, a faith that is not put into action won't save you. It won't preserve you. It won't keep your soul intact through the trial. And when other people go through trials, if you don't put your faith into action and help them, it doesn't do them any good. That's the tie-in with faith. 
to feed the hungry, to care for the sick, to shelter the homeless, to help those who are coming out of prison get back on their feet. Those are ministries of mercy. It's what people of faith do. It's what communities of faith do. It's not optional. It's what God's people do. Because, number one, it reflects God's heart for the poor. And and number two, caring for the poor and needy is a way that we show the world that Jesus, who became poor himself, that Jesus, who was the victim of terrible injustice, that Jesus, who cared for the poor and the needy, he t- and tells us to do the same, it shows the world that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is real, and that he is active in the midst of his people, just like he was living and active and real in the days when he walked this earth. All right, enough said about that. I got to end with this because this is the biggie. It all comes down to this. There is a huge indicative behind all these imperatives. Now, now to see the huge, remember the indicative is who you are in Christ, the statement of who you are. The imperatives are the commands that follow. And to see the huge indicative, the who behind the do, you got to go back to verse one. My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Here's my paraphrase. As believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, don't show favoritism. Now, that's the whole ballgame right there. And we tend to read right past it as if it was just religious talk. It literally is saying that Jesus is the Lord of glory. Because we are related to Jesus, the Lord of glory, don't show favoritism. In other words, people who see Jesus as the Lord of glory will not show favoritism. They will not determine a person's worth or value based on outward appearance or based on what people in this world define as glory. Why not? Go back to the word partiality or favoritism. Literally, the word means to receive the face of someone. To receive the face. Meaning, someone who's controlled by surfaces. Controlled by glitz, controlled by glamour, controlled by fashion, controlled by beauty, a beautiful face, a great body, great clothes. It could also mean controlled by someone's resume, controlled by someone's incredible credentials or connections, controlled by someone's importance. And James is saying, you need to be free from that, free from being controlled by all of that. And in our materialistic American fashion-obsessed culture, that's hard, isn't it? And it's worse today than it ever has been. The question is, how do we get free from being controlled by people's uh, appearances or their resumes or their status in in the world's value system? How do we get free? And and, and we got to have an answer to this question because, because when you're controlled by those things, you will look down on people who don't measure up. And that's what James is talking about. So how do you get free? Well, it's pretty simple. As Jason has said several times now, you become what you behold. You become what you behold. So what do we do? We're to look at Jesus and what he did with his glory. Philippians 2 says that Jesus had the ultimate glory. He was the ultimate, beautiful, glorious person. I mean, you can't, you can't stare at the sun for an hour without going blind. You can't get near the sun without it burning you and destroying you. Jesus, yet Jesus' beauty and glory was infinitely greater than the beauty and the, of the, and the power and the radiance of the sun, but you know what? He gave it up. He gave it up. He came to earth. And Isaiah said he had no beauty 
no glory that we should desire him. When he got to the cross, he was completely rejected and ridiculed. He was disregarded and despised. And on the cross, he was even disregarded by his father. He lost all honor. He lost all glory. He lost everything. Why? So we could be clothed with his honor and glory. He took our sin. He took the weight of our sin. He was stripped of his honor and his glory and his beauty so we could receive it. The glory of Jesus is that he gave up his glory so that we could be clothed in his glory. The glory of Jesus is that he gave up his glory so we could be clothed in his glory. And because that's true, listen, because that's true, James has the audacity to say, if a poor man wearing shabby clothes walks into your assembly or walks across your path and you're not courteous and gracious and asking that person to come sit next to you, if you don't treat them as an equal, then you don't understand the gospel. That's what he's saying. You don't understand that you were the poor, despised, shabbily dressed man who comes into the God's assembly with no hope, no glory, no resources that could ever make you right with God. You don't understand that Jesus gave up his glory so you could receive his glory. You don't understand this like Jesus says to you, here, I'll sit on the floor so you can have the good seat and be seated with me in heavenly places. Yes, God has chosen we who were poor and shabbily dressed to be rich in faith, And in Christ Jesus, he has become for us our righteousness and our holiness and our redemption. He has become our glory. You see in this, look, when you see Jesus giving up his heavenly glory so you can have the glory, the only glory that lasts, it changes everything. It changes how you see God. It changes how you see yourself. It changes how you see other people especially people who are different from you, especially people who the world sees as having little or no value. It changes everything because you know that in God's eyes, all people have the same God-given value as you. And you know that before God, everyone is equal at the foot of the cross. And you know that identity distinctions, the identity distinctions that separate us in this world the identity distinctions that make one group think that they're better than other groups, all of that disappears in the shadow of the cross. So you see in the the huge indicative here, the indicative is because Jesus gave up his glory for you when you had no glory of your own, put your faith into action by refusing to let someone's outward appearance dictate how you value that person. If James were here, I think he would probably say, yes, brothers and sisters, as people of faith, as people who have been given the riches of Jesus' glory and righteousness, don't show favoritism towards one person or one group over another. Don't let the world squeeze you into its unloving molds of discrimination, but put your faith into action by doing mercy as God gives you and us the opportunity. Father God, thank you for this word. Thank you that in this passage you don't pull any punches. 
And what we read here, Lord, we invite you to convict us where we need to be convicted. We invite you to search our hearts, Holy Spirit, and remove any and all favoritisms or partialities or discriminations or evil thinking that we're better or than someone else or some other group. Oh, God, give us the heart of Jesus in these areas that we talked about today. For, Lord, we don't want to be guilty of the things that James is calling us out. We want to, be, we want to have pure hearts and clear consciences. And we want to have a heart that does mercy as you give us opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.